Hello everyone, this is Patrick Kiesling, one of the medical students on the team behind ENT in a Nutshell. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so that you never miss an episode. Now, on to the episode. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Alyssa Smith, and today we're joined by pediatric otolaryngologist, Dr. Doug Seidel. Today we'll be discussing laryngeal clefts. Thanks for being here, Dr. Seidel. Thanks for having me, Alyssa. So we usually start with presentation, and in regards to laryngeal clefts, how does a patient typically present? It's a good question because, you know, patients with laryngeal clefts, they can present in a wide variety of ways, and many of the symptoms that patients who have a laryngeal cleft present, you know, these symptoms are, are common things, you know, coughing, recurrent respiratory infections, things that look a lot like asthma. Um, they can also have just frank choking with drinking liquids or with eating, but a lot of times it's not that clear, you know. So um, if you think of a opening between the airway and the esophagus, you think, oh, well, it's very easy. Every time the kid drinks, they're going to have something go in their airway and they're going to cough and it'll be that specific. Maybe they'll turn blue. Not always. Cyanosis or color change is possible, but more often it may just be a small child or even an older child who's having failure to thrive and recurrent infections. So do patients always present with symptoms? So um, your question, do patients always present with symptoms is, is a, a really good one. We have a lot of patients who have symptoms and we don't know they have a cleft and we ultimately end up finding that. There are sometimes patients who are completely asymptomatic are either coming to the operating room for another reason or we stumble upon the cleft. Um, And so it can be quite surprising that patients with clefts small and large can be entirely asymptomatic. So with that in mind, how common is it? And do we even know how common it is? In reality, the answer to your second question, I think the answer is no. We like to say one in 10 to 20,000 births, which would be, you know, something that's, that's not too common. It wouldn't be something that even a pediatric otolaryngologist sees every week, but we see these all the time. So is this likely underdiagnosed? It probably is. You know, the more we start to look for these subtle clefts, the small clefts at the top of the larynx, or the more we change our definition of what a cleft actually is, these, you know, numbers can change. The incidence varies in the literature and it can be as high as 7.6, 7.8% in some of the studies of kids undergoing um, laryngoscopy and bronchoscopy for aspiration, which if you think about that number, that number is quite high. And so I think to better understand all of the anatomy and physiology behind these, can we talk a little bit about pathogenesis and what happens during development that actually causes a cleft to form? Yeah. So with any congenital anomaly, we kind of look at um, who is having these and, and we look back at, at embryologic development because in things that are congenital, meaning you're born with it, it's something that goes on before kids you know, are born. And so Um, looking at the pathogenesis is important. Um, The first time we actually recognized that clefts occur was probably, I want to say, over 175 to 200 years ago. Um, And, you know, at that point, we didn't really have an understanding of why these things were present in some kids more than others. Um, You know, what happens during the development that causes the, the anomaly, a laryngeal cleft to form, has to do with the way that our our esophagus and trachea are one big pipe and then they actually separate during embryogenesis. So if you can imagine your trachea and esophagus having to form a partition between the two and then trying to decide what would happen if part or all of that partition didn't form, you could easily see how these kids could have certain types of laryngeal clefts. 
And so if you look all the way at the top of the larynx, the, the cricoid ring, which is the only complete ring of cartilage in the airway, at least it's the only one that's supposed to be there, um, that ring is totally formed by about the seventh week. So these high clefts, these type one and two clefts that we see, those are usually things that are happening by the seventh week. The clefts that go further down have to do with incomplete development of that tracheoesophageal septum, which can, you know, end up with that doesn't form, you know, in its entirety. You can have a cleft that goes all the way through the larynx into the trachea and down a bronchus, which can be quite devastating. And so when these patients present to our clinic or we're seeing them on the inpatient setting, what are some important questions that we should be asking about as far as their history? Well, first of all, I, I want to say that the, the more we subspecialize in medicine and surgery, the more we start to understand that patients with complex aerodigestive disorders, which this embodies that, it's an airway and esophageal problem, a lot of these evaluations are best performed by a multidisciplinary team or an aerodigestive center. At Stanford, we have an aerodigestive center, and so we have our otolaryngologist, speech pathologist, pulmonologist, and GI docs who are frequently involved in these patients. And you know, we want to know everything about the, the baby or the child, um, basically from the time they were born. And sometimes we have some information from before they're born. So we want to know their, you know, um, uh, birth history. We want to know um, how they've been growing and developing. If they have symptoms, when did the symptoms develop? And what are we doing to try to mitigate those symptoms? Is this just using pulmonary inhalers? Are we changing the diet? And with that in mind, what's the child currently eating? Is this somebody who can drink all liquids without problems? Or is this somebody who parents have to thicken up the liquids to keep their lungs uh, uh, safe? Um, and are they you know, showing up in the emergency room or in the outpatient clinic or worse in the ICU because they're having these terrible recurrent respiratory infections? So we wanna know all of these things. And if you really wanna simplify it in your mind, think about the anatomy, think about the pathophysiology and the embryology we just discussed, and think what could happen if we're chronically soiling the lungs or if we have a defect between the trachea and the esophagus. The idea is you may have symptoms that present like asthma, chronic wheezing or chronic infectious-like symptom, but um, why are they there? And why are they there in that child and not in another child? And that's where the anatomy comes in. And so also with that in mind, what are some physical exam findings that we should be looking for? Well, you know, like we mentioned in the beginning, some of these patients have almost no symptoms and we stumble upon the cleft uh, inadvertently. Um, I think that's less common, especially with the larger clefts. The physical exam findings we're looking at predominantly have to do with pulmonary symptoms um, and, and pulmonary findings such as abnormality on uh, auscultation. Um, are these children aspirating? And so in our clinics, we do swallowing evaluations and we actually observe feeds and do clinical evaluations. And some children will actually have striders so they can have noisy breathing. And depending on where that cleft is and what's causing the strider, that can be inspiratory, biphasic, or expiratory strider. And then I'm going to go ahead and assume that for most of these patients, at least, we'll be performing flexible laryngoscopy in the outpatient setting. And when we're doing that, are you able to visualize the cleft or are there other things that you're looking for? Well, yeah, you know, the, the again, all that wheezes is, is an asthma and we do a lot of looking in surgery. You know, part of what we do that separates the pediatric otolaryngologist or the otolaryngologist that matter from the primary care provider or pediatrician is the fact that we actually do these procedures in our clinic and we can look at the larynx. When it comes to laryngeal clefts, if you have a significant cleft um, what I'd want you to picture is that esophageal mucosa kind of furling into the airway. 
Um, and there's something that was has been described in the past, and I believe off the top of my head that it was Inglis who described this, but there's something called the ram sign where you kind of have a furling and picture a ram's horns, a furling of um, the esophageal mucosa between the arytenoids. But it's it's subtle. You almost have to kind of wonder what's that extra tissue there for? Is it just swelling? Is it something else? Many clefts, especially the high clefts like a type 1 laryngeal cleft, it's not the most obvious thing on flexible laryngoscopy. And if somebody were, somebody were to ask you, hey, is flexible laryngoscopy the tool to diagnose a laryngeal cleft? It is not. You can miss a lot of them. You may be suspicious for a cleft. There may be findings that suggest a cleft, but it's not the gold standard for diagnosing it. What we do occasionally in the clinic is while we're scoping kids, we feed them, and that's a, a fees. Once upon a time, that was fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing, but as time has gone on and fiber optics are less common, we, I think, are changing that now to flexible uh, endoscopic evaluation of swallowing. And when we're feeding the children, sometimes you, you can see a very coordinated swallow. There's no evidence of discoordination. The timing of the swallow is right on time, but you are witnessing aspiration, whether it's postprandial aspiration or whether you're seeing actual penetration and aspiration through that posterior interretinoid space. But we have many patients who undergo fees or this endoscopic swallowing evaluation who have a cleft and they don't have obvious findings on that exam. So I think fees and laryngoscopy are helpful, but if they're not you know, overtly positive, it doesn't mean that a cleft is not there. And so sometimes we use other imaging modalities like modified barium swallow study or video fluoroscopic swallow study is another word for that, um, which is, again, your MBSS or your VSS uh, to, to further evaluate the swallow. Now, remember, the difference between that and a fees is that the VFSS can actually show you what's going on during the pharyngeal contraction phase of swallow. So when that's, the pharynx completely whites out our scope because it contracts around it, you can see that on an x-ray swallow test. These two tests are um, complementary. You think of it like a Venn diagram. They both have a little bit of overlap, but they both have their own things that they can show you. So a laryngeal cleft, people have described, you know, a very specific kind of posterior horizontal penetration pattern. But again, like the um, fees, if this is negative or if it's nonspecific, um, it may not rule out a cleft um, necessarily, or it may not necessarily rule one in, but you can be more suspicious of a cleft with a subset of findings that you can see on the video fluoroscopic swallow study. So I think that that is helpful. Uh, another thing that a video fluoroscopic swallow study really brings us is, and a fees for that matter, is if the child has symptoms of aspiration and you're thinking, well, maybe this kid has a cleft, and you look in there and you're seeing extremely discoordinated swallow. The timing is off. They're um, having a lot of liquid um, get down to the hypopharynx or around the larynx before their body's actually triggering that swallow. That's suggestive of somebody who's going to have swallow problems probably no matter what, even if they have a cleft. Um, if you have a cleft and you have that going on and you fix it, you may not be as likely to fix the whole problem because there's a coordination issue as well. And then I know for a lot of kids that have congenital anomalies, there are some associated syndromes that we should be thinking about. How about for laryngeal cleft? Are there any associated symptom, uh, syndromes that we should be considering? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it wouldn't be ENT without a syndrome tied to it. So Pallister-Hall and opitz frius are probably the two biggest ones. Uh, and those are the ones that we see on our classically on our board exams. But, you know, in practice, I think that based on the rarity um, of, of some syndromes, 
We will see in our practice things like Vodder or Vocteral Association, Charge Association as well. And so with those, I think it's very important to, um, to be looking for at least thinking of a cleft. Also in patients with other associated GI or gastrourinary, uh, um, genitourinary rather, uh, cardiac or craniofacial abnormalities, um, we need to be thinking of laryngeal cleft as well as other midline defects. So cleft palate, tracheoesophageal fistula, et cetera. And so do you refer these patients to genetics when you see them? Not always. I think if we have an isolated problem, no other signs of um, syndromic uh, abnormalities, um, you know, we, we don't necessarily need to send them to genetics. That being said, a lot of these patients uh, end up with genetics anyways, and that's usually by virtue of some other things we're finding on physical examination. And then moving further down our workup and evaluation in the operating room, can you walk us through how you do your evaluation in the OR? Absolutely. So again, you know, in the past, in this, um, this lecture series, I, I mentioned that a flexible laryngoscopy is not the gold standard. So that begs, well, what is the gold standard? So the gold standard evaluation to, to diagnose a laryngeal cleft is a rigid endoscopy with palpation. Now, you don't need to use a ventilating bronchoscope by any means, but what you should do is you should get a laryngoscope into the airway, and then you should feel that inner retinoid space. Whether you suspend the, the laryngoscope and feel, whether you place a cord spreader or not, I think there's a lot of controversy about that. Sometimes if you put a laryngoscope in and you can actually, and then you suspend it, you can actually rotate the larynx, um, the posterior aspect of the larynx anteriorly. So it can, it can almost take a very subtle cleft and hide it. Whereas if you're just putting a laryngoscope in and holding it with your hand, um, you can see and, and feel with something like a right angle probe that you do have an, a space between the uh, arytenoids that extends all the way down to and or below the level of the vocal fold. So it's very important to look with a rigid instrument and feel. Um, the cord spreader, or the, it shouldn't be called a cord spreader, a, a laryngeal spreader or a false vocal fold spreader is something that can splay the, the vocal folds laterally and allow you to really scrutinize that inner retinoid space. So that's another instrument that's frequently used. And so what are some important features of the cleft that you are evaluating? I want to know how you know obvious the cleft is just on direct visualization. I want to know how deep the cleft goes. And so the one of the things that we're seeing a lot of now is patient, uh, practitioners will go in there and they'll see some space between the arytenoids. It looks deep. Well, sometimes the space actually looks deep because they have tall arytenoids. And this is the classic example is somebody with laryngomalacia who's diagnosed with a laryngeal cleft. Well, that's not always a laryngeal cleft. They may just have laryngomalacia and tall floppy arytenoids. So you really have to feel and then you have to use your right angle probe to really compare in that plane how deep that cleft is. And then you also, like I mentioned before, you're feeling, right? So some of these clefts um, are subtle. Um, and if you feel that inner retinoid space and you actually put that probe there, it will actually sink deeper than you would expect with your naked eye for that probe to sink. And then you feel the cricoid. Is there a notch in the cricoid? Does this cleft actually extend into the cricoid cartilage? And you'd be surprised at how many kids who have a type 1 laryngeal cleft, you feel that and you actually realize, nope, this actually extends partway into the cricoid cartilage. That's a type 2. And we can go over some of the different types in a little bit. Um, the other thing that you have to be careful of when you're feeling for these is that you don't really just push hard on that inner retinoid space because you can make anything look like a cleft. The inner retinoid musculature and the inner retinoid soft tissue is soft. So you can push that in and actually put that probe right down to the level of the vocal folds. That does not mean you have a cleft. 
And then can you just speak to the importance of the comprehensive airway evaluation um, when you're in the OR looking for something like this? Sure. So, you know, one of the more embarrassing things you could do is go in there, find a cleft, get out of there, and then realize you missed one or even two tracheoesophageal fistulas. What about anomalies and, you know, bronchial branching patterns? It's worthwhile in a multidisciplinary evaluation to actually do a pulmonary bronchoscopy as well. Paul Besh and Karthik uh, Balakrishnan wrote a paper discussing the utility of flexible bronchoscopy. They actually, you know, in their hands show that it's capable of, uh, it's a capable means to identify some of these clefts in experienced hands. Now, it's not the gold standard, but it is something that is frequently done, uh, something meaning a pulmonary bronchoscopy. It's something that's also done during the evaluation of a patient, say, with aspiration symptoms. And so, doing a thorough pulmonary and uh, tracheal airway evaluation is extremely important. And so far, we've mentioned the different types of clefts that can be present, but can we just go over the grading system that we use? Absolutely. So the classic grading system, and I think that anybody today would probably kind of go back on that Benjamin Inglis classification system because it's the most commonly used uh, classification system. So the type one cleft really just goes down to, and maybe just below the level of the vocal folds. The key with this and what distinguishes a one from a two is it does not go into the cricoid cartilage. There's not a notch in the cricoid cartilage. It doesn't extend necessarily too far below those vocal folds. And so that's why feeling is so important. So type one, pretty much to the level of the vocal folds. Type two, into the cricoid cartilage. Now type three, if that cleft goes through the cricoid cartilage, now you're in trachea, right? So if you go through the cricoid cartilage, that is a type three, all right? You're in the trachea, but you're still above the sternum, right? Above that breastbone. So you're in the cervical trachea. So what makes a difference between a type three and a type four? All right, type four, now you're in the thoracic trachea. You're between that area where the thoracic inlet starts and the, and the carina. Some of these, like I mentioned before, will extend all the way into a bronchus, and those can be a bear to fix, and most of those kids have symptoms right after birth. There's also this you know, difference in, in um, uh, opinion out there about what is a type one laryngeal cleft? Because remember, I said it's above the cricoid, but it's down to the level of the vocal folds. Well, where does that start? What's the upper boundary of that? And everybody has a different opinion. So we've started using this phrase, deep interarytenoid notch. I think if you're going to be out there and describing a cleft, just describe the interarytenoid space. If it's above the cricoid cartilage, just say the interarytenoid notch goes down to the level of the vocal fold or to the level of the ventricle or to the level of the false vocal fold. If I have an interarytenoid space that goes to the level of the false vocal fold, that is not a cleft in my eyes. It's not something that I'm going to fix. But if I have a patient who's aspirating and a space that goes down to the level of the vocal folds, sure, I can call it a type 1 laryngeal cleft or I can just describe it, describe why I'm in the operating room doing that procedure and um, you know make a decision with the family as to whether or not to fix that. There are also these occult clefts, which are clefts that may have a mucosal covering, so they're not as obvious, but when you feel them, you'll actually feel defect in the cricoid ring. Um, it's not something that's talked about as much, but if you're out there in practice, it's really something to remember. Occasionally, kids can have submucosal defects in their uh, laryngeal superstructure. So now that we have our diagnosis and we're looking at management or treatment, what exactly are the goals of treatment for these patients? Right. Well, you know, they're coming in with symptoms many times, right? And remember, we talked about they're having pulmonary complications or may have difficulty swallowing. Well, you want to prevent that, right? And in some cases, which is, again, more uncommon, 
you have strider, right? And so that's airway obstruction. That's air passing, you know, uh, rapidly through a narrow space, usually in the larynx or trachea. And so if you want to reduce strider and you're reducing airway obstruction, again, less common, but it can happen. And what is the treatment approach for these patients? And can any be managed conservatively? Absolutely. So I think that the reality is um, type one clefts, we really are relying on the function of the patient. Um, There's been a, a couple papers out there, but you know, one of the patients in Boston described a, um, uh, you know, a, about a 20 to 30 percent incidence of type 1 laryngeal clefts that are diagnosed that will be okay with conservative management alone. Um, I think that if you have a laryngeal cleft that's a type 2 through 4, we're frequently fixing those um, to, you know, because uh, of the known risks of having the cleft uh, over the long term, uh, as well as a lot of the other issues that justify repair in these patients, whether they're syndromic or they have uh, other uh, m- uh, medical problems that really require us to keep the kid as spruced up as possible. Um, but uh, there are patients who can just get by by thickening the liquids. Um, and the, you know, we can also control reflux to make sure that we're not having additional inflammation uh, or reflux and associated aspiration. Um, you know, not every kid can be thickened and every hospital has different rules as to how old you need to be before you start using some of these thickening agents and which thickening agent to use. And there are some kids who, you know, from a medical risk standpoint, sure, you can thicken it, but they're not going to drink it. And so when you see your patients, remember, you're looking at individual kids and you have to work with the uh, resources that you have. So while you may have two children that look very similar on swallow study, have a very similar microlaryngoscopy and bronchoscopy. One patient may tolerate thickener and the other one might not. And so you may be a little bit more uh, uh, likely to fix the one who doesn't tolerate the thickener. And before we jump into surgical repair, can you talk a little bit about the role of an uh, interarytenoid injection? Sure. So if you go on PubMed and you type in interarytenoid injection, you're going to find a lot of papers that talk about injecting clefts, injecting every interarytenoid space, etc. I think everybody has a, a different opinion as to how well this works. Um, I think that patients um, who are, are okay candidates for this, if injection is part of your practice, are really all only patients who fall in that type 1 cleft category. I don't see a lot of utility in injecting a type 2 laryngeal cleft. Um, foremost, the injection is going to give you a little bit of bulk in that interretinoid space, but it's not going to give you nearly as much closure of that interretinoid space as, say, a suture uh, uh, technique. Um, in addition, you know, if you inject that area and it doesn't work, does that mean that closing the cleft isn't going to help? No, it doesn't mean that because, like I said, you're not doing as significant of a closure with um, an injection as you are um, with a, a, a surgical closure. Now. That being said, if you do an injection and the patient actually has a dramatic improvement in the symptoms and as that injection material wears off, the symptoms come back, that may justify you doing a surgical repair because what you're shown yourself or what you've supported at least is that that notch or cleft is actually contributing to the problem. You get rid of it, you know, one way or another, it is um, uh, going to help. Um, So that's, I think, where injection falls. In my personal practice, if you want to know um, how often I inject, very little. The beginning of my practice, I injected more often, um, and it is not a risk-free operation. It's a low-risk operation, but it's not a risk-free operation. So I don't inject too often anymore. I usually, if there's a cleft there and it's the problem, I just sew it shut. 
And what are some materials that are commonly used? Does it differ from kids versus the typical injections that we would use for adult uh, vocal fold paralysis? Yeah, you know, I do a lot of vocal fold uh, um, augmentation. I think that, you know, the, a lot of these are, are very similar substances. So hyaluronic acid um, is, I think, a good one. Um, if you're going to do something, Juvederm is an example. Um, those will last, you know, in the range of months. Um, there are also certain types of gels you can use. One of these is like prolarin gel or the carrier gel that was used for ca uh, calcium hydroxyl appetite. The old name was prolarin gel and prolarin plus. Now, um, the carboxymethylcellulose, that lasts a matter of weeks. Um, it's almost like a gelatinized water. It is um, probably the injection with the lowest side effects, but probably the lowest effect. There are things like gel foam, which are purified pork skin gelatin. They do these use um, gel foam for things like uh, uh, causing coagulation. Um, those will tend to last six to six to 10 weeks, I'd say. Um, people were using that for vocal fold injection as far back as the 70s. Um, Symmetra, uh, micronized uh, alloderm, that again will be in kind of your range of months, if not longer. I think some opinions are mixed about that. Um, and then some people who uh, have written about this have talked about calcium hydroxyl appetite, which is, you know, picture kind of a gelatinized cement being injected back there. If you misinject this, it's not going away anytime soon, and you can actually cause more problems than not. So if you're going to inject something, I would pick something like hyaluronic acid, something that you're comfortable with, it's pliable, um, you can remove it if you need to, but it's not going to last forever. And so let's talk about the repair. Can you discuss the surgical approaches that you use? Absolutely. So, you know, the first open approach to, uh, remember, I said this was first identified 200 years ago, but the first time we actually said, let's cut somebody open and fix this was in 1950s, I think 55, and that was Patterson. So things have changed dramatically over time. I think he was closing like a type one or a high type two laryngeal cleft. Um, there's a bunch of different approaches for the various types of clefts. Um, you know, the big dividing line is, do you do it open or do you do it endoscopic? So type one clefts, again, we frequently rely on function as to whether or not we're even going to close them. Um, but if we do close them, I would have a really hard time justifying an open approach for that. That is an endoscopically repaired, uh, surgery. Um, the, uh, type two through type four, you know, a lot of times these patients are going to the operating room, no matter what the question is, whether or not you're going to do it endoscopic or open. Type 2 and many type 3s, I think I used to say some, but many type 3s actually can be done and done well endoscopically. Uh, and then the type, some, you know, the long type 3s and, and the type 4s is best treated with a, a open technique. So if you're, you know, comparing these endoscopic versus open approaches, um, you know, the endoscopic approach, there are a lot of different um, uh, opinions as to how you should do this and um, what instruments you should use. All patients will require a suspension laryngoplasty. So you insert your laryngoscope of choice, you suspend the larynx, you bring in an operating microscope, and then you have to decide, am I a cold steel guy or am I a laser guy? Personally, I use cold instruments because I think it teaches the residents a lot about uh, laryngeal instrumentation, but I'm fine with a laser as well. So use what's good in your hands. The idea is what you really wanna do is denude all of that mucosa in that throughout the cleft. And the big place people like to leave mucosa behind and, and cause problems is the apex. So put a vocal fold spreader in there, a laryngeal spreader rather, spread that open. Um, I do a little bit of an injection with a, a little oral tracheal injector um, using uh, some lidocaine with epi. Let that sit for a sec. 
then I denude the mucosa with cold steel, and then I do um, personally a mass closure technique. So I use a PDS suture, usually a 4-0. I do it on with an RB1 needle. You can use a 5-0 with an RB2 if it suits you. You can use Vicryl. It lays flat. I just personally don't use it. Um, and I take the going from posterior to anterior, left to right. I will throw sutures starting at the apex and working back. You really need to make sure that apex is completely closed. Other people actually do this in layers. They'll sew that anterior mucosal layer and posterior mucosal layers separately. I think that takes more time and the studies that we have done shown there's not any difference in the outcomes and and both the dehiscences and or swallow outcomes for these patients. When you think about an open approach, well, there are a bunch of different ways to do this. In the old days, we talked about these lateral pharyngotomy approaches. They're not really used anymore. Um, the, the steps of the repair for these really depend on where the cleft is. And so you can do an anterior approach, picture op- making an incision in the anterior neck, um, going down onto the um, trachea and the larynx, making a split through the cricoid, and at a bare minimum, the inferior aspect of the, the laryngeal cartilage. A lot of people used to open the entire larynx and do a complete laryngofissure. And you may need to do that for your reach. Remember, you're sewing up this entire interretinoid space as well as uh, the cleft itself. When we do this, we sew the, uh, uh, we take the esophageal mucosa, and it's a lot of times that's redundant mucosa. Remember I told you that you can have strider with uh, the these clefts? Well, what's happening when you have strider is a lot of that laryngeal, mu- or the esophageal mucosa is flopping into the airway. Um, a classic mistake, just as kind of an anecdote that I made when I was a fellow, is I had a patient with a type 3 cleft. Miracul- miraculously, he wasn't aspirating. Um, but we identified the cleft, and what was the first thing I do- did? I put in an, uh, a nasogastric tube. Well, what did that nasogastric tube do for this little baby who was breathing on room air? Um, the nasogastric tube pushed all the esophageal mucosa into the airway. It obstructed the airway, and then I had to intubate the patient. So, um, Remember that that mucosa is there and it's redundant. So when you're doing these repairs, one of the first steps you do is you kind of decide how much extra esophageal mucosa do I have in the open approach and um, how much can I trim? And so you're trimming this in layers. You're separating that tracheal component from the esophageal component and you're closing the esophageal component. um, And then we use an interposition graft, which I can talk about a little bit more in a sec. And then we close the tracheal segment. Some people do this with running suture. Some people do this with uh, uh, interrupted suture uh, and buried knot. What I try and do is I try and keep suture and knots out of that space between the trachea and the esophagus. I have no problem if I have a couple knots running up the lumen of my trachea in these kids. It has never once caused a problem for me and uh, my mentors such as Mike Rutter um, have done it that way for a long time uh, and uh, um, it, it causes no issues. There are a subset of kids who have these long type four clefts um, and I, I'd be happy to talk about those as well. Um, the type four clefts are again, clefts that go into the thoracic trachea. There's a subset of these kids who you can actually reach that um, apex through the neck, and that requires pulling the trachea up a little bit through that anterior approach. Um, Many of these kids uh, potentially, and especially if it goes down the bronchus, the cleft goes down the bronchus, you will need a sternotomy. So you're going to open up the neck, uh, I'm sorry, open up the chest uh, via sternotomy approach and approach the trachea that way. Now, whether you make a linear cut down that anterior aspect of the trachea and approach it straight through the trachea, so in the esophagus and trachea uh, um, and causing that separation that the patient needs, um, 
or you do a, uh, a different type of approach, which is actually one that I do for type four clefts. Um, and again, uh, this is something that I learned from my mentor, Mike Rudder, where you actually do a laryng laryngotracheal separation of sorts, where you cut the trachea off of the um, uh, larynx at the level just inferior to the cricoid. And now you're looking down the lumen of the um, both uh, of the airway, but you're also seeing into the esophagus. Then you make a separation between that mu uh, mucosa of the esophagus and the trachea. Um, and then you sew from dis the apex, that distalmost point of the cleft, all the way up proximally to the interitinoid space. You do it for the esophagus first. You lay down that interposition graft, and then you close the trachea. Then you reanastomose the trachea to the larynx. So that is an excellent technique. The one last thing I'll talk to you about for these long clefts where you're doing an open approach, let alone a sternotomy, I actually put those type four clefts on bypass pump. Uh, the reason why, or ECMO, uh, and the reason why is because this gives you the luxury of having to, of having the time and the space without a breathing tube in there to um, close your esophagus and your airway in a very, uh, uh, you know, watertight, as they say, fashion. You can do it with a breathing tube um, and ventilate the entire time, but if you have a long cleft, what you need to do is actually put your breathing tube in the airway, and you may have to main stem one of the uh, bronchi to do it, um, and then you can suture the tube in place so when you lift up that trachea and you're working on the esophagus, the endotracheal tube doesn't move around. It actually stays in position. Uh, it can be quite a bear and qu quite a nuisance um, to have uh, that endotracheal tube in the way, so... I have done these on bypass, and it's actually a quite short bypass run uh, if you need to do it. And so you mentioned these interposition grafts. When do you use them, and what are you using for your grafting material? Sure. So again, the interposition are for the open approaches. Um, I, I think that sternal periosteum is a very good choice um, because if you're entering the neck, it's right there. Um, if you're entering the chest, you just take some before you make your sternotomy. That's uh, the best way to do it. Tibial um, periosteum is something that may also be used. Um, it's a separate incision on the leg. In the old literature, and still occasionally used, you can use pleural flaps or sternocleidomastoid. So those are all options. And then how about any surgical techniques to decrease the risk of postoperative fistula formation? I think really um, making sure that you uh, make your cuts on your esophageal mucosa such that, you know, you've, like I said, you've got a lot of extra esophageal mucosa. You really want to um, kind of denude that area so that you have um, a, a very raw surface that you're sewing together. For these open approaches, you want to make sure that you have, you're really scrutinizing your suture line as you're throwing these sutures down. You're not leaving gaps. Um, you're not putting things on tension where tension shouldn't be. Um, and you're, you are um, not overdoing it with uh, the amount of, of uh, tension you're putting on. You don't want to, to uh, uh, constrict the mucosa um, with, uh, or, or devascularize the mucosa by uh, excessive tension on each knot if you're placing uh, uh, interrupted or, or even a running suture. Now for the um, uh, endoscopic approaches, again, denude everything and focus on that apex. When we see these things break down, yeah, you may lose a stitch up high. That's not a big deal. You throw another stitch at some point in the future. But if you have that apex that opens up, what you end up with is a form of a hole, almost like a TEF. It's harder to fix, and um, you may have to kind of open everything up to, to completely close it if it's causing a problem. Um, so I think that... Um, to decrease the risk of fistula formation and fistula development is know your technique, use a technique that works well for you. And with the open approaches, just uh, really scrutinize what you're doing while you're doing it. It's really easy to kind of uh, skip, 
layer or, or lose track. And again, I think that inner position graft is a fantastic extra layer um, to, to uh, reduce uh, fistula formation. And then any other surgical pearls or words of wisdom for learners? Yeah, you know, um, I think that the laser versus cold and, and uh, uh, layered versus mass closure, you do what is best in your hands and that may depend on your training. Don't be afraid to change if you need to. Um, also, you know, for, like I mentioned, for long cluffs, consider cardiac bypass. Um, and then, you know, I think that the other thing that people tend to forget to do with the endoscopic approach um, that I've at least witnessed a couple times myself is they will go in and they'll do an endoscopic cleft repair. But what you're doing when you do that is you're bringing the arytenoids closer together. And if you have even the slightest amount of laryngomalacia, what happens is those short area epiglottic folds pull the epiglottis down and kind of covers up the airway. So by all means, cut the area epiglottic folds. Do your little area epiglottoplasty ahead of time. It'll make not only your closure easier, but it'll reduce your strider post-op. And so speaking of post-op, how are these patients managed? Are they discharged same day? Do you keep them overnight? Personally, I don't discharge these patients at all um, on the same day. Could they go home? You know, the number of complications we've had in the post-op arena with patients with these short laryngeal clefts, type 1 cleft closures, is very, very uncommon. It's, it's, it's very low. Um, patients with longer clefts, they may, you know, these type 4 clefts, a lot of these kids are going into the ICU maybe with a breathing tube in for a little while. Um, the short clefts I tend to put in the ICU just because at my hospital, this is an, you know, an excellent place for airway observation. If you have a complex airway unit at your institution, that's a great place for it. Or if you just have a very secure and safe um, floor for patients who don't have any other significant comorbidities and have relatively healthy lungs, um, I think they could go to the floor without an issue. Um, there are a couple papers that have been written about this. I think uh, uh, there was a Boston paper that talked about a, a very specific algorithm as to how they determine what patients go um, to the ICU versus floor. And it, it really depended on um, their pre-op evaluation and their comorbidities. And then how about the typical post-op diet? So if they're not intubated and they're, um, and again, with these type 1 laryngeal clefts, I have them spontaneously ventilating and type 2 and 3. I have them um, spontaneously ventilating the entire time. Um, and so we tend to go to sleep without a breathing tube and we wake up without a breathing tube. So these kids uh, can eat post-op. Um, I think that the type 1 and 2 clefts at a, at a minimum, this is a standard for us. I allow them to eat the same consistency diet um, as they had, uh, same consistency liquids as they had uh, pre-op. If they are on a regular diet, I will have them, you know, eat a soft diet for, you know, a week or two. Um, I'm not as strict about that as I used to be. Uh, if patients are drinking and let's say they were on nectar thick liquids pre-op, we do a laryngeal cleft repair, and now they're coughing a little bit with the nectar thicks. I'm not against thickening it up just a little bit because they can be sore after, after uh, surgery. We may uh, de-innervate them a, a little bit, um, and they do have some changes to get used to. So I may thicken up the liquids a little bit. Um, I do give them uh, reflux medication after surgery, and I avoid steroids if possible. And so what are some post-operative complications that residents should be aware of when we're managing these patients? Well, this is one of, the, I think, the most important things uh, that you asked me, because every complication that you think about that may occur to the child is something you need to talk to the family about beforehand. So after surgery, you may be going in for aspiration. They may persistently aspirate, okay? I told you about the laryngomalacia 
And I told you about how we're bringing the arytenoids even closer together or that interarytenoid space. You may have a little bit of strider um, or airway obstruction afterwards. Um, I think that that's something that's, if it happens, it's brief uh, and doesn't, you know, I've never had to take down a cleft repair, that's for sure. Um, you could have cleft breakdown and that may happen in two weeks, that may happen in two years. So, um, you know, a reevaluation in the operating room may be needed. Um, you could have leaks at your anastomotic site, whether you're talking about an esophageal closure or a tracheal anastomosis. You could have tracheal issues if you do a laryngofissure or a tracheal transection, um, anything that could go along with that, including dysphonia um, and or tracheal stenosis. You can have strictures of the esophagus, and you can injure the recurrent laryngeal nerve um, depending on what your technique is and, and how you're uh, uh, doing the operation. And again, these are all things that we need to counsel our families on before repair. So speaking of counseling parents... How do you counsel them on the chance of a successful surgery, and how do we even define surgical success? Yeah, so you know, the, I, I go through the risks of of the outcomes, and and I talk to them about their child's pre-op swallow evaluation. If they have baseline just gross discoordination, the cleft repair may be less likely to be successful. And I talk to them about that. If they have a very focal anomal uh, a focal problem on their swallow evaluation, and they have a very obvious cleft, we may be more successful. There are other things, comorbidities, neurologic uh, uh, issues that may be um, occurring alongside the cleft that may make their um, outcomes different than somebody who doesn't have any comorbidities whatsoever. Um, as far as a long-term success is concerned, I feel that it's not too hard to keep that cleft closed, um, but how successful are we at actually improving the swallow study? Um, Alex Osborne was uh, um, attending it at... Uh, uh, Cincinnati Children's Hospital, he looked back at a bunch of swallow study or a bunch of laryngeal cleft repairs and their swallow studies. And about 57% of the kids had normal swallow function. And then you can break it down that about 20% had some penetration and aspiration, but the vast majority of the kids got better. Uh, Reza Rabar at uh, Boston Children's also looked at a bunch of their um, patients and they had improvement in swallow and all the patients for all cleft types. I think that I can never give a guarantee like that. I think the majority of my patients, I tell them that, you know, we're looking for improvement. You know, I want to be able to thin your uh, uh, liquids down. I want you to have fewer respiratory complications. Um, I want you to have uh, fewer respiratory infections. Some kids are on nectar thicks, but they're still getting in the hospital and having intermittent uh, issues. And we do a cleft repair and their swallow study may look similar, but they're much, much better. Parents are saying, look, I'm not using my palmacord anymore. We don't even have to use our inhalers. Um, and, you know, I don't care what the swallow study said, my child is better. So, um, you know, we're looking for improvement on all fronts. And obviously we want a patient who's aspirating to be not aspirating on the swallow study and everything to be perfect, but it's not always that successful. So when we're getting repeat swallow studies after surgery, do you get them for all patients? And what does that follow-up look like? So I tend to see my patients a couple weeks after surgery just to see how they're doing. They all have my phone number and cell phone. So if issues come up beforehand, I'll see them. But um, I make sure that we're not having any obvious issues. And then I start. I tell them I'm going to order another swallow study for most kids um, at about six weeks. And this is important, I think, for those silent aspirators, the kids who aspirate and they don't cough when they, when they uh, have aspiration. And we can see that on swallow studies. So we do a cleft repair. I'll do the swallow study at about six weeks post-op. And for the, you know, for a couple days before the swallow study, for better or worse, I do have them kind of gradually thin the liquids a little bit. So the first drink they're having at the time of the swallow study isn't the first time they've had thin liquids in a year. So um, that's my approach. Now, if a kid is one of those kids who classically coughed every single time they had an aspiration event, 
Um, I, you know, and we do a cleft repair and now they're not coughing anymore. Um, I will occasionally follow those patients uh, on an outpatient basis without um, repeating the swallow study. And so thinking about the natural history of this anomaly, what if we didn't repair it? What can we expect to happen in that child? I think many kids who have unrepaired clefts, and if we're assuming that the cleft is associated with their aspiration, you can have long-term sequela, um, you know, that's associated with your your lungs, um, the bronchiectasis um, uh, and, and other uh, pulmonary complications may occur even in the absence of recurrent pneumonias. Um, you may just be subtly aspirating for long periods of time and ultimately suffer the consequences of that. Patients with larger clefts tend to typically follow a more classic uh, pattern of obvious aspiration, but not always. And so if you have a laryngeal cleft and you have some swallow dysfunction and you're not able to mitigate um, some of the issues that you have, whether that be recurrent infections, chronic inhaler use, chronic inflammation, bronchiectasis. If you're not able to mitigate that with thickened liquids, then a cleft repair should be done. All right. So in summary, patients with laryngeal clefts um, can have some common presenting symptoms such as coughing, choking, dysphagia, and occasionally cyanosis, as well as failure to thrive in recurrent respiratory infections. Laryngeal clefts form due to failure of the fusion of the posterior cricoid lamina, as well as failure of the formation of the tracheoesophageal septum. Workup includes a comprehensive history and physical exam, as well as laryngoscopy and evaluation of swallowing function with fees or video swallow study. Rigid endoscopy with palpation under general anesthesia is the gold standard for diagnosis. Management approach should be individualized and based on symptoms and type of cleft. Treatment includes conservative management with thickening of feeds, as well as a variety of surgical options ranging from endoscopic to open approaches. Dr. Seidel, thanks again for joining us. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I really appreciate the opportunity. And I think that, you know, the last thing I'd like to say is just a, a, is a couple points. An upfront conversation with the parents is key, especially with these type 1 laryngeal clefts. Everybody manages them different. question is, how much is that cleft paying, you know, playing a role in the patient's problem? It's tempting to fix everything, um, but look at the overall child. You know, what else do they have going on? What's the resource burden? What are you actually trying to accomplish? And what are the parents' expectations? Because if what you're trying to do and what the parents want to happen is different, well, then you got yourself a problem there that needs to be solved before you uh, fix anything. <laughs> um, again, thanks a lot for the opportunity. I appreciate it. All right. Awesome. I'll now move on to the question portion of this podcast. As a reminder, I will ask a question, pause for a few seconds, and then give the answer. The first question is, what is the grading system used for laryngeal clefts? The grading system used for laryngeal clefts is the Benjamin English classification system. This is at least the most commonly used classification system, although others are also present. So in this classification system, a type 1 laryngeal cleft goes down to the level of the vocal cords, type 2 falls below the level of the vocal cords and into the cricoid, type 3 goes completely through the cricoid and into the cervical trachea, so still stays above the sternum, and then type 4 goes into the thoracic trachea. The second question is, what are some syndromes that are commonly associated with the laryngeal cleft? So the two most common syndromes that we think about are the Pallister-Hall and the Opitz-Frias syndromes. 
Pallister Hall can also be associated with a bifid epiglottis, polydactyly, syndactyly, hypothalamic hematoma, imperforate anus, and then kidney abnormalities. Opus frius is commonly associated with hypertelorism and hypospedias. The two other syndromes or sequences that we want to be thinking about include bacterial and charge. The third question is what are some common presenting symptoms for patients with a laryngeal cleft? So some patients may be completely asymptomatic, although when they do present with symptoms, some common symptoms are coughing, choking, dysphagia, recurrent respiratory infections, failure to thrive, and sometimes cyanosis. More severe clefts, such as a type 3 or type 4 laryngeal cleft, are more likely present earlier and with more severe respiratory symptoms. And that's all for today's episode. Thanks for joining.